Uh, we're taking a one-week break from <clears throat> our series in Galatians to consider this uh, psalm, which has so much to say to us about the, the sufferings and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And once you've turned there, would you uh, bow your head with me in prayer? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we want to know and see more of our Lord Jesus Christ today. Having bled and died for sinners, he now lives and sits at your right hand. So would you send the Spirit, the, the Spirit of Christ to come and wield your word with power this morning so that the voice we hear would be the very voice of our Lord Jesus Christ speaking to us from his word that we might fall down on our knees and confess him as Savior and Lord afresh or perhaps for the very first time. Come and work in our midst, O Lord, for the glory of our Savior Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, psalm 22, we're going to read the entire psalm. Let's give our attention to God's word. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They Make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me 
from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Psalm 22 is a psalm of David, but the content of this psalm exceeds anything in David's life experience. It is the psalm which our Lord Jesus quoted as he was upon the cross in order to give expression to his suffering as he cried out to God. From the word of God, it was Psalm 22 that came to his mind. And a careful reading of this psalm shows us not only why Jesus used it, but why I think the only right way to read this psalm is to see Jesus at the very heart and center of it. It gives us a remarkable picture, a remarkable prophetic picture of the experience of Christ on the cross and the intense suffering he endured there. And it's spoken, you you noticed as we read, it's spoken from the vantage point, not of of the apostles or uh, not from the vantage point of onlookers, but from the vantage point of the one who was hung upon that cross and from the vantage point of that one who, who emerged forth from the grave in resurrection victory. Psalm 22, it has two major divisions bringing together both the death and the resurrection of Christ. In verses 1 through 21, you have the the depths of God-forsakenness. And in verses 21 through 31, you have the heights of resurrection glory. And so this psalm, if you if you like, brings together what we might call Good Friday and Easter Sunday together in one psalm. It shows us in in vivid detail the horror of Jesus' dying love for us. And then it takes us to the empty tomb and reveals to us Christ's resurrection glory. So let's come along together here and look, first of all, at the sufferings of Christ in Verses 1 through 21. 
First of all, notice, notice the pattern of these verses. There are, there are three blocks of texts that deal with the nature of Christ's suffering. Each of them followed by verses that show us the unwavering faith of Christ in God. In the midst of his suffering, this passage, it alternates back and forth. Each of these texts tell of the suffering of Christ and then shift to show us the unwavering trust of Christ. And so if you like, a, a wave of suffering comes upon our Lord Jesus and then the wave subsides and we see the unshakable rock of Christ's faith. We see it in the language of, yet you, O Lord, but you, O Lord, as a crashing wave of suffering rolls over Jesus and then subsides. We see the rock of Christ's faith. And so look at the first wave of his suffering in verses 1 and 5. And note that, that this psalm does not build to climatic suffering. It begins with the climatic suffering. It starts, uh, if you like, at the at the height of our Savior's uh, suffering. We, you know, we could say a lot about the, the physical pain that Christ endured upon the cross and his crucifixion, the, the agony of torture. But as terrible as the physical suffering of Jesus was, this is what makes the cross hell. Not the nails in his hands and feet, but the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, in this moment, we have to say no one has, no one has experienced the depths of darkness into which Jesus was plunged in these moments. As the full fury of the divine curse falls upon Jesus. As the condemnation that our sin incurred was reckoned to Christ. And as the Father for the, for the first time from the consciousness of Christ removes all sense of, of fellowship and, and love from Jesus. And, and in its place, you, you understand, I hope, Jesus wasn't merely given over to isolation. Jesus was given over to condemnation, to judgment. He was, he was handed over to wrath, to the wrath our sin deserved. And somehow, somehow in the incomprehensible mystery of the Trinity, never ceasing to love the Son, perhaps, perhaps never loving the Son more than in this moment, the Father poured out unmitigated, unreserved, untempered, Wrath upon his very own son. Here is Jesus bearing the weight of our sin. The condemnation we deserve. Here, my friends, are the wages of sin displayed on Calvary's cross. And it raises the question, does it not? In light of Calvary, how can we ever toy with sin? I mean, how can we ever take sin lightly? Here's what our sin cost the Son. The, the dereliction and abandonment of the Son to the wrath and the fury of Almighty 
God. Look at that wretched figure upon the cross and you have, I think, the biblical cure to a casual view of sin. It's no small thing, my friends, to rebel against God, to sin against God, to minimize sin because it costs nothing less than the very lifeblood of our Lord Jesus Christ. The question, the question of our Lord, which he, which he hurls up to heaven in prayer here, expresses the, the utter perplexity of Jesus the man in this moment. Why? Why am I God forsaken? And it's important for us to recognize as we hear Jesus pray those words that it is not a prayer of unbelief. It is not an ungodly prayer. It is actually a prayer of faith in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain. Yes, it's a cry of anguish, but it is a cry of faith. Even when in this moment he has lost all sense of his own native sonship as the eternally begotten son of God. He cries out still, my God, my God. He's clinging to the God he can no longer see. The God he no longer senses is near. When he cannot find God, it's a cry of faith. And I, I think that is an important thing for, well, many of us to see and understand. To understand that when Jesus asked that question on the cross, he sanctified the very same why question for, for many of those who wrestle at times with feelings of God-forsakenness. In the midst of suffering, as suffering and difficulty breaks into our lives, you, you, see, you see what this means for us, my friends. It means that Jesus Christ is a, is a, is a refuge. He is, he is a repository of, of grace for those who likewise are looking for or crying to a God who does not seem near. But then notice the sustained faith of Jesus amidst his suffering. And in verses 3 through 5, notice the change. Yet you are holy. The first thing he does then is recite the faithfulness of God to the fathers. Take a look at it with me. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. They trusted in you and were not put to shame. He, he rehearses God's past faithfulness in order to sustain his own trust in the midst of suffering and pain. He, he sustains faith in, in God's faithful love and care by remembering God's faithful care in the past. And my friends, isn't that a practice for, for us to keep in mind when, when suffering begins to overwhelm us? Remember Remember the faithfulness of God. Remember the kindness of God. The care of God for his people. He has been faithful again and again and again and again down through the ages. And you see here it was Christ's own method to sustain his faith in the valley of the shadow of death. By remembering the past faithfulness of God. In the midst of suffering, preaching to his own soul, the steadfast faithfulness of God. 
Then in verses uh, 6 through 8, the psalm alternates back to focus more on the sufferings of the cross. The, the second wave comes crashing down upon Jesus here. And the, the focus of the suffering here is not so much upon its spiritual effects, but upon its dehumanizing effects. We'll take a look at it. Uh, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. A worm and not a man. That's how Jesus felt in that moment. Despised by the people, treated, treated like an animal, something less than human, dehumanized, but beneath mercy and compassion, ridiculed and mocked by passers-by. For, for everyone, you see, for everyone who has experienced the stripping away of their dignity and humanity, there, there is someone who has plumbed the depths of that humiliation ahead of you. You see, no one else may comprehend the, the sadness or the sorrow or the depths of humiliation that you have experienced in your life. But you see what the psalm is telling you? It's telling you Jesus knows. There are no depths of humiliation that you may experience where Jesus Christ cannot meet you. He has, he has gone to the furthest horizon of human pain and suffering and humiliation so that he can say to you, I know. I know. I know. He's what Hebrews says, he's a sympathetic savior. He was stripped. He was beaten. He was, he was dehumanized and mocked. And everyone else around him abandoned him in the hour of his greatest need. His own disciples left him. Left him to the Pharisees and the people who hurled insults at him as he hung naked before the world. He saved others. Let him save himself. Do you, do you hear the... Do you hear the irony of that statement, dear friends? Because the reality is, if he saved himself, he could not save others. And that's why he remained there. He trusted in the Lord, they said. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him. And did you see why Jesus says, I am a worm and not a man? That's how he felt. You might feel like you cannot go to anybody... You know, nobody gets it. Nobody, nobody understands. See what Psalm 22 says. It says that's not true. Psalm 22 says Jesus gets it and that you can go to him and in him you have a perfect sympathetic high priest. Then in, in verses uh, 9 through 11, the, the wave of suffering goes back again. And again, we see the solid rock of Jesus' faith. This time, it is bolstered and supported not by 
a rehearsal of God's past faithfulness to the fathers, but by a remembrance of God's faithfulness in Christ's own life. Take a look. He says, but, but you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Here is, here is Jesus, the man, remembering God's past faithfulness to him as a covenant child. He can, he can trace the workings of a tender father in his life to his earliest days, indeed to his own conception as a man. God has been his God. He was, he was made to know and trust in the father from his earliest days. Yeah, some of us have, I think, similar testimony. Some of you as, as covenant children don't remember a day when you didn't trust in the Lord. And as sinners, you don't remember a day when you didn't have a sense of, of your own sin and the need for the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, in age-appropriate ways, we're trusting in Jesus and seeking to flee from sin. And you know, sometimes I think people are given the impression that that's a sort of inferior testimony. I say, no, it's not. No, it's not. It's a glorious testimony. It's similar to the testimony of Jesus himself. It's the way things ought to be in covenant homes. From his mother's breast, he trusted in the Lord. He, he never knew a moment or a time in his life when he did not trust in his Father in heaven. It's the way it's meant to be. And here is Jesus using God's faithfulness in his own life to sustain his faith in the hour of trouble. Maybe an application for us here as we, as we think about this for ourselves is we need to do some reflecting upon our own stories and see the, see the covenant-keeping, faithful God of steadfast love as the central character of our stories. Not ourselves, but the God of faithful love. And when you do, I think you will find abundant fuel to fire your faith in God, even in the midst of the worst of, worst of times. And so bolstered by the recollection of God's faithfulness to him, Jesus faces the next wave of suffering then in verses 12 through 18. Now don't miss the, the physiological effects of the crucifixion here, the details regarding the soldiers at the foot of the cross, casting lots for his garments. It's, uh, well, it's one of the reasons I think to trust the Bible. A thousand, nearly a thousand years before Calvary, you have a detailed description and prediction of all that took place at Calvary. Now look at how this all went down then in verse 12. I'm surrounded by many bulls of Bashan. They're, they're like lions waiting to consume the Savior. Verse 13, there are dogs snapping at him all around. And verse uh, 16, they, they pierce his hands and feet to a cross. They divide his garments and cast lots for his clothes. And then back in 14 and 15, he is poured out like water. His bones are out of joint. His heart is melted like wax. His strength is dried up. His tongue sticks to his jaws. God has brought Jesus to the dust of death. 
And this is, this is an extraordinary description of the lingering death of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then the wave, the wave rolls back again. And we see the faith of Jesus in verses 19 through 21. Note how this time Jesus does not look back to God's past faithfulness. But he cries out now for God's future faithfulness and care. He calls out for rescue. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. Come and deliver me. I think uh, most of you will understand this language, I I hope. There, there There is a misinformed Calvinism that says the only right response to suffering is just passive indifference. Right? A, a sort of passive endurance of pain. A theology, I think, that fails and falls into the mistaken notion that suffering in and of itself is a good thing. But suffering is not a good thing. Yes, God according to his infinite wisdom and power, is able to work the worst of suffering for the good of his people, as we see preeminently in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean that suffering in and of itself is a good thing. And our Savior Jesus himself asked to be delivered from it. This psalm, I think, is teaching us it is possible to humbly submit to the wise sovereignty an ordinance of God while at the same time asking to be delivered from the trials he has ordained. You know, if you struggle with that, let me encourage you to spend some time in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus. Jesus himself prayed, if there's, if there's any other way, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. He cried for another way, but submitted himself to the wise ordinance of God. And so a faith, a faith that clings to God and sustains us in the midst of suffering is also a faith that cries out to God for deliverance in the midst of that suffering. Now take a close look with me at verse 21 because this is the, the pivot on which this entire psalm turns. There is... There is a sudden change from the sufferings of Christ to the victory of Christ. And I think our translation perhaps isn't the best here, though. I think the better translation is mentioned, at least in my copy of the ESV, in a footnote. A very literal translation of verse 21 might read, Save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen. And then notice suddenly, you know, rather abruptly, almost interrupting this request. It declares, you, well, not you have rescued me, but literally, you have answered me. The answer to the cry comes. And then notice, at this point, the whole tone of this psalm radically changes. Suffering ceases from here on out. In this little clause in verse 21, death gives way to resurrection. Here in the second half of verse 21, we could say that here here are the implications of the Savior emerging forth from the grave. Now what's especially wonderful, I think, about this psalm 
is that it tells us not just what it was like for Christ to suffer on the cross, but also it shows us how Jesus responds to the fact of the resurrection. It tells us how Jesus responds to the resurrection before it tells us how we ought to respond. Look at the text with me. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. Jesus' response to the resurrection, his resurrection from the dead is praise in the midst of the congregation. In the Greek translation of this, literally it says, I will praise you in the midst of the ecclesia, in the midst of the church, in the midst of the people of God. Jesus is saying, I will, I will make your name known to those you have given to me. I will stand in the midst of the, of the people and praise you. I will, I will be their worship leader. Be their worship director, standing alongside people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Those redeemed by my blood. And as the worship leader of the church, notice how Jesus invites us then to respond to his suffering and resurrection in verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For, and here's why we should worship, he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. You see the glory of that verse? It's saying the reason for our worship is that the prayer of Jesus has been answered by God. Jesus Christ was raised. Jesus Christ is alive, raised from the dead. The Father heard his cries and answered and delivered him from the jaws of death. And so we're summoned to worship because The tomb is empty and and the throne is occupied and kingship belongs to the Lord our God in Jesus Christ. That's why we have hope in, in the face of suffering. That's why we have an unwavering hope in the face of of death and can say with Paul, oh, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Because Jesus defeated death. And one day, death, which which has already been definitively defeated, will be completely undone and swallowed up when Jesus, who rose, returns to be be with us. And so a great congregation will gather, this psalm tells us, in the wake of these great facts of Jesus' suffering and resurrection. And notice the The poor and the afflicted are there in verse 29. The rich and prosperous are there in verse 29. In verse 27, it extends to all the ends of the world who shall remember and turn to the Lord. All of the families of the earth, the nations will worship before God. Rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, all people from every class and background brought into the congregation of God's people to give God praise because Jesus Christ lives. And in verses uh, 30 through 31, we, we learn how this great 
congregation is assembled. We're told posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. In other words, a a missionary movement will originate from the, the cross and empty tomb and it will span the globe and the passing years until people from every tribe and tongue and nation join together with with one voice and say, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Worthy of all glory, power, and honor. But what is it it exactly that will draw the people into worship? What What will lead them to forsake their idols and bow the knee to the risen Christ? What's the content of the message that gathers the nations in? It's, it's there in just four glorious words in verse 31. He has done it. Or as Jesus himself understood those words upon the cross, it is finished. The debt has been paid. Sin has been atoned for. Our guilt has, has been removed. There's nothing else to do but to come in faith and bow down in worship because Jesus died. You see, there is grace and pardon for you and me. And because Jesus lives, there is new and everlasting life for all who put their trust in him. You know, Easter time is uh, a time for many of us to get together with our families. It's, It's a joyful day for many of you as you see loved ones. Sadly, for some in our congregation, it's, 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 a day of, it's a day of sadness and loss. Psalm 22 is exactly what we need, dear friends. Because Psalm 22 does not fix our gaze upon our temporary blessings in this life or our sufferings and losses. It fixes our gaze upon the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. We see then there's real sympathy for for broken and suffering believers because he suffered for us. We we see that there's forgiveness for sinners because Christ became sin for us. We, We see that there is hope for tomorrow because Jesus Christ is alive. Praise, praise God. He has done it. It is finished. This psalm is here to tell us. And so may the Lord fix our gaze upon Jesus today. And may it lead us as this psalm calls us to do. To give praise to the God of our salvation. Well, let's uh, pray together. Our Father, we, we do praise you that Jesus Christ died and, and rose for us. The same body into which the nails were driven now is seated at the right hand of God our Father. And we thank you that he is coming again one day to judge the living and the dead and to make all things new. We thank you that Jesus Christ endured the horror of the cross for the joy set before him so that by faith we might be his and being his, enjoy you forever. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.